0: This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alsa Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined by my colleagues Ed Reed and Andrew Dykes, and uh, well, plenty to dig into this week. Um, but first and foremost, have you guys done your Christmas shopping? Are you any good with that stuff?
1: I mean, that's why uh, somebody invented the internet,
0: you No, know? so you could just sit there Amazon, on your sofa,
1: uh, bip, bip, bip. And then things get delivered. You're waiting for the, the big grey sleigh
2: to pull up outside, are you with all of Santa's Santa's treasures? <laughs> just
0: just shoveling it in through the door. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty far ahead, Alistair. Santa's been sticking my packages outside, like in the bins outside, and, and I'm like, that's not a reasonable place to put the parcels, Santa. Uh, it's not quite down the chimney anymore, is it? But there we are.
2: I'm I'm pretty well ahead, I have to say. I'm I'm feeling okay. I've still got a little bit left to, to mop up. I think, though, as you say, Ed, I think uh, the internet definitely a better option than uh, the sharp-elbowed rummaging through town and shopping centres. um yeah. is the alternative.
1: I was, I, was, I was speaking to someone the other day about uh, about, about that sort of uh, Christmas Eve rush into John Lewis, and uh, you know, like no one, no one wants to do that. That's very unpopular in Aberdeen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anecdote. <laughs> John Lewis isn't even, John Lewis is gone in Aberdeen, yes, it's a sticky topic for us, yes, yes, it was like a COVID cent- vaccination centre now or something like that, or it was anyway, anyway, sad. that is a sad, sad Christmas note on which to start the podcast, um, but at least we're getting the shopping done. Um, we're going to start with news this week, as I say, it has been a lot going on, but we'll start this week with news that broke. Last night, as we record, around the ex-BP CEO, Bernard Looney. uh, Some news around his remuneration after resigning in scandal earlier this year. Andrew is going to bring us up to speed.
2: Yeah, I think there have been better early Christmas presents. um, But this is the news that uh, former BP CEO, Bernard Looney, will forfeit up to £32.4 million in earnings after he resigned uh, in the wake of a scandal earlier this year. So to recap, there was the, the shock announcement in September that he would step down. Uh, At the time, BP's board said they'd received allegations from an anonymous source in May 2022, which was followed by Mr. Looney's disclosing a small number of historical relationships with colleagues prior to his becoming CEO. At the time, they found no breach of the company's code of conduct. However, they said further allegations had been received more recently to that announcement and they began an investigation. At that point, obviously, he stepped down. BP had said he'd not been fully transparent in his previous disclosures and did not provide details of all relationships and uh, accepts that he was obligated to make more complete disclosures. So that investigation has now concluded uh, in an update BP uh, sent around last night. They found that uh, he had provided inaccurate and incomplete assurances in July 2022, and as such, he had knowingly misled the board, which is, I think, uh, not a new statement. I think they kind of intimated towards that, but obviously this is the the formal official Mm -hmm. finding from that investigation. Uh, It will see him forfeit potential total remuneration of up to 32.4 million pounds, of which about 90% was automatically forfeited as a result of his resignation on the 12th of September. He will receive no further salary, pension allowance or benefits and will not be paid any annual bonus for 2023. Um, so most of that $32 million, uh, comes in the form of his uh, director's incentive plan. So that's a lot of share awards. Uh, that's the total value up to $24.8 million. But there's also 1.2 million in salary and pensions, 3.2 million in potential bonus payments, and another 2 million in unvested bonus awards from 2021 and 2022. I think potentially worse than that, maybe there's also a clawback clause which will require him to pay back 50% of the cash portion of his annual bonus from 2022. So that's about 400 grand. And I'm assuming this is based on kind of quarterly reporting and things, but it's a very precise 636, which I think is a is a sixth yeah i think that's a sixth <laughs> i'm just going to be sure though uh, that's another kind of half a million in and uh, share awards from between 2020 and 2022 uh, based on performance so uh the news broke last night i think the ft had for the first formal statement from from bernard looney since the resignation um he said he was disappointed with the way the situation had been handled but was proud of his tenure as chief executive and, quote, it's been an extraordinary privilege to have served a great company for over 32 years, not least because of the incredible people with whom I've had the opportunity to work. As I look to the future, I want to simply wish everyone at BP all the very best. Um, I think, though, you know, not the way a CEO would want to go out, not the way you'd want to go out after 32 years with the company. Um, and it, it seems to be, you know, the, the sort of coverage and the, some of the comments that we've seen rolling in overnight it seems to be the kind of a bit of making an example of them and, and kind of the full extent of all of these uh contractual obligations they're they're gonna as I say claw back as much as they can I mean Alistair you, you covered it what, what was your uh, impression
0: um, it, I mean I kind of uh, I suppose what, what what struck out to me you know these unvested shares marking I think I don't know what the exact figure was it was something like 82 percent of the total potential sum um, and he apparently knew that he'd be forfeiting that um, or I think BP said that he forfeited that immediately upon his upon tendering his resignation. Um, I think if I knew I'd be forfeiting up to 24 million um, pounds for for that portion of it um, by handing in the resignation, I'd be quite sure that my position was pretty untenable and there was no kind of defense of it, you know, because um, when I saw that figure, I thought, oh my gosh, is he, is he going to try to fight this? Is he going to try to sue them? But he's already, you know, kind of accepted a degree of responsibility by offering his resignation i guess that's what was going through my head and me and ed i remember we were kind of talking last night when it broke is like am i reading this right 32.4 million um you know pounds i was like it's incredible um but yeah i suppose as as you as you've been alluding to there andrew i mean it's it's a pretty hard line statement it it's it, it reads a bit like a rap sheet of um the various things he's done wrong it does seem as as, as you say bp perhaps making a bit of an an example of things here uh, we will not tolerate this kind of disgrace i mean if you look back to bp's recent history with with the the with the exception i'd say of, of bob dudley you know the 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 other three you know looney hayward and um john brown the, the ball kind of uh, stepped down to to one extent or another in in a degree of of scandal right so um it, it's it's they're gonna have to do something about this um, um but yeah i think I think the other thing that we've we've reported on a lot um that might add to this kind of rap sheet um from b p is that obviously the, the pension scheme um what you've written about recently andrew um you know a lot of b p pensioners not really happy with how things are going, so you can see perhaps why they'd be a bit uh, a bit harder lined about um the, the the situation with with um with looney um given that you know some people with interest in BP, are not happy with how their money is being is being used. So, yeah, a, a few bits there. But, um, yeah, it was quite a shock to see that figure, I must say.
2: I think, yeah, it's, it's obviously the, the cash value, right? And I think they, they did the calculation of the current BP share price. So I, I don't think it's sitting there in cash. But obviously, it's a lot of shares. It's a lot of kind of future potential income as well, uh, dividends and such. So, you know, yeah. it's uh, I suppose it also makes a change, perhaps, to some of the, you know, I think we're maybe used to seeing kind of a lot of, uh, chief executives resigning in disgrace or being kind of forced out of companies in other sectors and uh, and you know walking away with kind of golden handshakes and things like that and i suppose there is a bit of a cautionary tale that obviously you know mm. this kind of uh, behavior isn't uh, going to be acceptable and, and certainly there's a bit of kind of the esg governance side of this right that's saying you know we're not we're, we're gonna make sure that everyone knows that we don't just tolerate this and let people kind of drift off um that there's this very clear uh mm-hmm. consequences for that i had two questions the first of all was just, you know, what if he's spent it? I don't know what happens if I don't know how you, <laughs> 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 yeah. obviously your shares are kind of just sit there, but you know, if he's, you know, gone out and bought himself some some nice things, I don't know how like you, a Ferrari, yeah, or I, d- I don't I know, how to you, hand over the keys. I don't know how you claw that back. The other was was the sort of nature of the allegations. Obviously, BP's under no obligation to disclose the, the findings of the investigation, but kind of just did stick to its original findings that it was it was a misleading of the board about the extent or nature of these relationships. I think the ft ran a story uh in the uh kind of weeks following the the initial departure saying that there were kind of allegations that he'd promoted people with whom he'd had past relationships um and that kind of was was a particular uh point of of discussion or, or investigation around these these findings bp kind of dismissed that and said uh that you know it had a rigorous uh hiring and uh, management process and then no kind of single person could effectively put you forward for promotion and and just wave it through as a result of that. Um, but still, you know, I would be kind of interested to see how the extent of which this misleading took place, you know? Um, but I suspect we'll, we'll never know. Unless there's a tell all biography maybe coming for next Christmas potentially. Well,
1: who knows Uh, what, what, (laughs) <laughs> that would be one hell of a Christmas present, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, my my impression was that he had uh, sort of responsibility or authority over people that he had relationships in and didn't disclose them. Which I think, uh, I suppose, is maybe less about the promoting. It's more about just kind of you know that kind of clarity that obviously BP is going for. But I think, I mean, I think, I think that that kind of bigger question around what is wrong with BP CEOs um it's very much the the kind of the big question right and obviously for the next guy is it is it mario klaus is it somebody else can they can they can they actually finally kind of break this curse because it does feel like three out of four of the last bp ceos has left under something of a cloud
2: yeah, obviously we spoke about that with the with the candidates, right? And whether actually maybe did breaking with tradition and going with an external hire, who's at least kind of vetted by several other third parties, potentially maybe the the better option in this case rather than a a lifer with some skeletons.
0: <laughs> did Did you guys know? And I've just found this out. I mean, I probably should have been aware of it, but I wasn't. That in 2013, so three three years after Deepwater Horizon. Robert Gordon University, um, where I studied, um, handed Tony Hayward a a degree, an honorary degree. So you know, there's there's still hope for for burners. You know, <laughs> he could he could come. Where, where does he go next?
1: Right. I mean, yeah. I'm sure that uh, you know, obviously, maybe 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 the world of super majors uh, might be now closed to him, but I'm sure there are some I don't know Nocs for instance, other avenues uh, who might be interested in, uh, in 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 offering him some sort of a job. So be interesting to see where uh, Mr. Linea
2: ends up next December.
0: Yeah, his whole career was BP, wasn't
2: it? Yeah. I, okay. I did. There is, right, I mean, well, you know, a cosmic irony in the 32 million and 32 years service, I have to say, but I, I wasn't going to make too much <laughs> of it. But yeah, there's, uh, there's something in that.
0: Well, we will uh, park old Bernard there. I dare say we'll be following more on this as the CEO race gets going at BP. But next, we'll pivot to talking about North Sea safety as workers get heavier.
2: In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt, and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape.
0: Okay, so North Sea Safety. We've carried a few pieces on the weight of offshore workers and the size of offshore workers of late, and there's been issues moving around this for a little while, and we wanted to get a sense of the extent of it, so we put a Freedom of Information request out to the Health and Safety Executive and received 10 documents back, letters to operators, letters to the trade body OEUK, and letters to their team of inspectors. And one letter that we got from HSE's principal specialist inspector to its team leaders, uh, they said that of particular concern, are new figures from OUK UK that they've seen showing 36% of the workforce now appear to weigh in excess of 100 kilograms. Of that, 5% are above 125 kilograms. And that means they're now above the maximum threshold per person for solas rated lifeboats that's the majority of lifeboats used in the uk sector those are at a maximum rating of 100 kilos per person it's not just a weight issue it's a size issue as well operators have tried reducing the capacity of lifeboats in the past but hse has found among other things poor training linked to this operators ignoring maximum design loads from manufacturers there's been cases of harnesses not being big enough to fit the girth of workers, Ithaca's FPF1 had no lifeboats. Of all th- of all three lifeboats, not one of them um, had um, harnesses big enough to fit the the largest set of workers, and that means you know can't fit in the right places. You may not be able to simply reduce capacity to solve this problem. And HSE is now seeking assurances that basically life-saving kit offshore is fit for purpose. Operators have got this legal mandate to ensure, as far as reasonably practical, that everyone on board, everyone, um, has, uh, you know, ability to escape in the event of an emergency. And there's some saying, well, if this was managed properly, it'll be fine. The evidence suggests perhaps not. I mean, again, girth of workers mean lifeboat harnesses don't fit. Workers can't fit in certain allocated seats. As I said, you know, we have... HSE, as I say, looking at uh, maximum low designs, Um, you know, we've got reported case here of of poor lack of training. The OIM, the offshore installation manager on Ithaca's ALBA, not having had emergency refresher training in nine years. Um, That asset not completing proper drills and training linked to lifeboat and evacuations. Lack of onshore managerial oversight. FPF1, different asset, not prepared for an emergency evacuation on top of not have it, of having substandard um, lifeboat harnesses, as the HSE put it, Apache Forties Alpha, Forties Echo, you know, lifeboats being routinely overloaded in terms of their weight capacity. It was about 125 kilograms they're overloaded by, the coxswain uh, never having had emergency response training in his three years in the role. Uh, Taka Cormorant Alpha, workers unsure of what PPE to wear in in the lifeboat, and that can obviously affect that size issue. Uh, Inspector said of the 250 new starts on board the, the asset in the 12 months prior, it wasn't clear who had had the proper kind of donut device and lifeboat training. The answer should be everybody. Um, it appears that the training was only being carried out every three months or so. So it all adds up, I think, to a pretty damning indictment. I mean, imagine, you know, heaven forbid, a major accident. You need to escape. You don't know what PPE to wear. You haven't been given the proper emergency training. You don't know which seat to go into. You're scrambling to find a seat because you can't all fit for reasons you're unclear about. Um, The OIM hasn't got a clue. He's not had a refresher training in nine years, you know. If you just think about that conflation of issues, and then you have people saying, "Oh well, if it's managed properly, it's going to be fine." Well, I'm not too sure, guys. Um, you know, there's there's been there's this ubiquitous issue now of, of workers being too heavy, and too large overall. And yeah, I think that lack of preparedness, the poor training, um, combined with that, is is a bit of a dangerous cocktail. HSE has its Q4 inspections now, um, seeking assurances that, as I say, the life saving appliances are all fit for purpose. Um, we'll be we keen to see the outcomes of that. Um, will lifeboats need to be replaced? More added on? Um, what other kind of cultural steps might need to be taken? Um, UK said it, they are they have got a kind of a consultation out right now. Um, what they've kind of underlined is that workers with a lot of valid medical will not be told you can't go offshore because of your weight or anything like that. So some steps will need to be taken. It's not clear what they'll be, but I, I would argue this is quite a concerning. Um, revelation um you know that the, we knew that workers were getting bigger but i mean over a third of them being too heavy to 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 safely go in is is, is of concern
1: uh, so can i can i ask you about the kind of the, the regulatory sort of authority right in terms of sort of enforcing sort of safety standards um
0: who has responsibility for that and what can they do? Um, HSE, uh, the Health and Safety executives in, is is in charge. I, I'm not. I'm not sure to the extent of their powers. I mean, I think they can take things as, as far as they need to go uh, in terms of ultimately. You know, I think it's financial penalties, or can they can they shut them down? I mean, I I expect they can go pretty far. I've never seen an example of that. Um, they can certainly you know submit things to the Procurator Fiscal in terms of reports for prosecution. Um, you know, we've seen that before. Um, so I, I think their powers are fairly extensive. I would need to be refreshed in terms of what they, will, they would do, and I think that's certainly a question we should be asking when we get these Q4 reports back. But most of the time, we're just finding kind of improvement notices, eh, enforcement notices. Some of these letters didn't go that far. You know, These are just kind of letters sent to operators that we've gotten through FOI that would never have been disclosed otherwise, really. Um and uh, or, or, or or as far as I know anyway. Um so yeah, the HSE's in charge, the extent of the action they'll take I'm not clear on, so I hesitate to ask to answer that. But um, you know, I think I think what is clear is that there has been emails circulated, a, a lot of concern been circulated around the the, the operator community through OEUK. Um HSC's been taking has been doing things like these hazard workshops outlining these concerns. You know, are your lifeboats fit for purpose? Are you meeting your legal regulatory requirements? Um, so, so yeah, the, the issue is there. The issue is being worked on. It, it seems to me they're trying to take a proactive kind of, dare I say, a fairly healthy approach with, look, we'd rather help you deal with this than, um, you know, just penalize you after the fact and not actually get anything sorted. That that seems to be the, the way they're approaching it. But, um, you know, nonetheless, I mean, if... If action isn't taken, if the improvements aren't made, then yeah, we need to be asking, you know, if if the carrot won't work, what about what about the stick? Well, that that is
2: right. It's it's meant to be a constructive process, and I think that is fair, right? That you know, you cannot. I think it is uh, impractical to expect everyone to be on top of every single thing all the time. That's why we have the inspections and the regulator for that. Hmm. And I think most of the things that we see are kind of as you say, improvement notices, helpful guidance towards things and reminders of kind of the implications of of not following it. But that does require a concerted action, right? That does require the industry to actually sit up and listen. And I don't know how many of these kind of major bulletins we need to see before it feels like something really concrete and really kind of wide ranging is being done. One thing I think is also interesting is just a wider societal thing. I think it, it, it just shows the sharp end of this industry on a kind of predominantly male, predominantly aging workforce and what that effect is you know i'm sure that is, is mm. there's a kind of macro factor across the whole of the uk in that but that you really see the sharp end of that at this yes. point where you just have a kind of demographic of people who have aged into this position and you know the the uh, supporting structures around them are maybe not keeping up as as much as they need to be
0: yeah yeah i i think the societal issue is 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 absolutely spot on i mean and, that, and that's to be fair what all uk and, and others were saying to us when this all was coming out you know this is not not an issue um specific to the oil and gas industry certainly it is not but uh, as you say Andrew, the demographics certainly would seem to put it in a particularly vulnerable position as regards it and nonetheless they have a legal obligation to ensure uh, as far as reasonably practical that people can escape in an emergency and you know uh, it's unfortunate that the, the offshore population as, as as we've set out um is it the, you know the the sharp end of this? But push comes to shove, they have to they have to get on top of it, and and if they aren't if they don't take something some kind of concerted action, then it does it leaves people vulnerable. There's no other way of putting it. Um, yeah. So quite uh quite concerning we have the q4 inspections coming up um and hopefully we will get a bit more clarity in terms of what exactly is going to be done to resolve this issue um but we will we will leave the lifeboats issue there for now and next we'll round up with ed's cop 28 roundup
2: As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Mega Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Okay, Ed. Uh, been taking a little look at the the off to COP twenty uh, eight. Historic success or uh, profound <laughs> failure? What's, are the, are what's those the my verdict? only
1: two choices. Uh,
0: oh, well, I don't know. That's, that, those are those are yeah. the two options I've seen um, rolling about. I mean, I know. think
1: I think that's the thing. I think there, there is always this uh, sense at every COP that is there's always this 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 uh, desire to sort of you know say, oh, this is a major breakthrough or this is yet another failure and as with every cop it's like well you know there's some some progress we've you know moved a bit further down the road i mean i think that there are, there are, there are there are a few kind of important things that they kind of stand out right i think um in the in the, in the obviously in the run up to cop and and the discussion around cop there's a lot of discuss a lot of talk around you know, was it gonna be sort of dominated by oil interests? Or so Sultan al Jabir, the uh the, the president of COP twenty eight, uh was is also the the head of ADNOC, which is uh, you know, obviously one of the world's largest oil producers. Abu Dhabi wants to move from about four million barrels per day of oil capacity to five million barrels per day by twenty twenty seven. And people were saying, you know, is this the right guy to uh, to be leading uh obviously a, a kind of a, a, a group that's working to, you know. Tackle things like climate change and and, and sort of reducing uh, reducing carbon, and it feels like um, in in some ways it, it has been something of a success. I mean, I think you know there there have been differences of opinion. Um, OPEC, you know, kind of came out and and was reported to be kind of pushing for a sort of a softening of the language. They wanted uh, fossil fuels not to be included in the in the official text. Uh, they kind of were kind of pushing for, you know, instead of talking about like moving away from fossil fuels, they were sort of talking about moving away from carbon. Um, uh, you know, and 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 then and then obviously um in the final text there was uh, there was a statement saying, you know, need to sort of you know all parties recognize a need to to, to move to transition away from fossil fuels. Um, so that was kind of a way to kind of square that circle. I think you know there's there's always sort of discussion in these things. There's there's, there's, there's a sort of nitpicking over, over particular terms. I mean, I'm, I'm, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but I suspect that this is what uh, lawyers do professionally. So in the, in the, the run-up to the COP, there was a lot of discussion: is it was it, was the language going to be phasing down fossil fuels or phasing out fossil fuels? Um, and and you know there's hmm. a, there's a, there's a point to which that seems very important, and there's a point to which that seems nitpicking over over uh, particularly obscure details um so i think the fact that that this text has said we need to transition away from fossil fuels is significant right i think the fact that this was delivered by the head of an of a major oil company um in the world's largest sort of oil producing region is 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 notable and he said you know like sultan al Jaber, sort of speaking said look it's 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 fine to just you know talk about things but what we need to actually do is implement this plan right we need to actually make it happen which, which feels like a sort of like a recognition of the fact that obviously you know these kind of you know cops you know, have a tendency to be a bit of a sort of a talking shop and you know to, to actually sort of see kind of concrete um things kind of coming out is 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 um is, is important and and obviously kind of seeing these plans kind of move forward obviously you know adnok has not changed its plan it still wants to increase its capacity you know to 5 million barrels per day but there have been you know there, there have been some 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 big um, i think the, the, the two kind of big energy kind of things that stood out for me was uh, a commitment from from the people signing on to the uh, agreement that um they needed to triple renewable energy capacity by 2030 um, so that's the, the target to get is to get to at least 11,000 gigawatts, um, obviously, in seven years, that is going to be a big ask, there's going to be all sorts of things that are going to be thrown into the mix. And obviously, that's going to take a lot of cash. Um, and 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 there was also there's also been, you know, I think I think they said $85 billion worth of, of cash has been sort of, you know, committed. Whether that cash actually goes into the, the right projects in the right places is, is, of course, one of those kind of questions that's kind of up, up for debate. And then the other part is is about the oil and gas decarbonisation charter, which um, was kind of widely kind of discussed in the in the run up to COP, and is it's just companies kind of committing. So it's forty percent of oil producing companies have said that they will tackle um, methane leaks, flaring by twenty thirty. So again. It's, it feels like, you know, this is very much like a, like an obvious thing to do, but it, it feels also notable that they've said, look, this is an issue, we are going to tackle it. And obviously there are benefits to uh, to, to, to tackling kind of uh, methane and, and capturing it and, 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 and putting it into more production. So for the oil industry, it feels like a bit of a win. Um, and the oil industry obviously will be part of the, uh, part of those, the, those investments kind of going into that kind of tripling re- renewable capacity. But so I would say it feels like progress to me, but obviously very much about whether these plans actually get seen through.
2: I think one thing that was interesting, Ed and I were on a, a webinar, I think last week or the week before, um, about kind of some of the outcomes of COP and how it relates to, to UK energy security. And uh, they had a kind of Middle Eastern uh, political expert speaking who was answering some questions around kind of what what success would look like for the UAE and, and he said that there'd been this kind of narrative that because of the fossil fuel connection that they uh, and their kind of geopolitical connections that they would probably push back against a lot of these measures to transition away or phase down or whatever that language would be but he also said as hosts they really want to see a result from this they want to they want to be the cop where something actually did get done as Ed said and and something was put into action and so he said it was, it was kind of an interesting double-edged sword there but he's He kind of came down on the side of they probably want a positive result with which the kind of geopolitical community can say, well done, that was a good, a good event, rather than this idea that you'd bring everyone here and then you'd kind of stand in the way of actual progress. I thought that was interesting because I think it does fly counter to a lot of the narrative that has been going around, uh, especially around the sort of the presidency.
0: So very quickly, a couple of things I was going to ask about. I mean, in terms of the, the you know, I, I was watching ITV's coverage of it yesterday. Um, side note, it's people agreeing at wording of a document. It is difficult <laughs> to make that engaging. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Samoa, the Pacific Island nations, um, and it seemed a lot like what I've kind of what we heard during COP26 in Glasgow, you know, um, felt a bit disenfranchised. I, I think they, there was some suggestion that they couldn't really make their objections noted until after the basically the document wording was agreed i don't know whether that's accurate or not but yeah to, to what extent are we you know kind of going around in circles here um and yeah what have we heard from the kind of the the island nations you know the, the, the nations that are you know much more vulnerable to the immediate effects of climate change um, in, in this process? Yeah,
1: I mean, look, I think there's going there are going to be some big questions around, you know, the actual impact. Obviously, kind of low-lying island nations like Samoa and the sort of Pacific Islands, they're, they're really at sort of the front end of, of the sort of the climate crisis. And I think, um, obviously, so we're, you know, the uh, Algebra said that the agreements, you know, may, kept us sort of on track for one and a half degrees of warming, which, you know, might be enough, uh, it might not be. I mean, obviously the science is kind of still up in the air about quite what impact that will have. And obviously the kind of the bigger question I think is obviously, can we actually kind of lock in that kind of uh, trajectory to 1.5 degrees? And I think that's that's kind of really the big question, right? There, there's obviously a kind of a, a discussion around, you know, renewable energy, but there is, you know, there is no kind of, no one's saying we're not gonna be producing oil and gas. So I think that is still very much the kind of the heart of the question. I think, um, so 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 yes, this this kind of the UAE consensus, as it's called, is 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 sort of tackling some of those big issues, right? I mean, I think like a lot of those questions around, for instance, sort of energy access that were kind of coming out of of, of you know sort of developing countries in in particularly sort of sub-Saharan Africa, where obviously electricity access is still extremely limited this you know this kind of you know scaling up uh, renewable capacity will have an impact there will it, uh, will it will it will it save samoa i mean i don't i don't know i, I and I, I don't think there's any kind of degree of consensus about that so i think yeah i mean i think that, that that is 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 a very legitimate pushback but it feels like that possibly this was the maybe the best agreement that they could get to uh there was a lot of uh political drive behind it from the uae as, as as andy said and you know it was obviously sort of facing some some stiff opposition saudi opec you know not 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 keen to kind of tackle these kind of issues in this particular way so it feels like is it enough to save samoa i don't know but is it the best that we could get probably so it's it's you know it's it's going to be kind of an ongoing kind of a question, and obviously you know we're going to have COP twenty nine in Baku in Azerbaijan uh, next year, and then uh, COP thirty is in, in is in uh, a city in Brazil, I think is it, it Belém. So these 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 discussions are going to continue, and I'm sure that we're going to see you know this kind of continued friction between people who are saying we're doing too much, people who are saying we're doing too little. But as always, where we started, wasn't it, you know, there there is always going to be these kind of forces on either side and sort of trying to get the best possible agreement is is always going to be, uh, you know, a topic of political, uh, you know, Exchanges.
0: Okay, well, it sounds like there's more to come, uh, Ed, but thank you for that rundown. Uh, and that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Um, I'm going to go and try to do my Christmas shopping now without the use of Amazon. Uh, thanks to Ed again and to Andrew for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the
2: podcast from Energy Voice